in Washington wishing you a great week ahead, Africa. This is VOA News via remote. I'm Tommy McNeil. Kremlin installed officials in occupied southern Ukraine celebrated Russia Day on Sunday and began issuing Russian passports to those in one city who requested them uh, as Moscow seeks to solidify its rule over captured parts of the country. Uh, the uh, Russia Day is a holiday that marks Russia's uh, emergence as a sovereign state after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Ukrainian media reported that uh, a few, if any, local residents attended the Russia Day festivities in the two cities. Dozens of lawmakers who make up the biggest block in Iraq's parliament resigned on Sunday amid a prolonged political impasse. Uh, plunging the divided nation into political uncertainty. The 73 lawmakers from powerful Shiite cleric Maktada al-Sadr's bloc submitted their resignations based on his request to provide and protest a persisting political deadlock of eight months after general elections were held. The parliament speaker has uh, now accepted their resignation. South Korea says that North Korea has test-fired suspected artillery pieces into the sea, South Korea's chiefs of staff said they detected several flight trajectories believed to be North Korean artillery on Sunday. It says South Korea maintains the uh, mil firm military readiness and close coordination with the United States. The suspected launches come days after North Korean leader Kim Jong-un called for greater defense capability to cope with outside threats. This year, North Korea has conducted a spate of weapons tests and what foreign experts call an attempt to pressure Washington and Seoul to relax international sanctions and make other concessions. More at VOANews.com. This is VOA News. Brazilian police say that uh, search teams have found a backpack, laptop, and other personal items that belong to indigenous expert Bruno Pereira and a freelance British journalist, Dom Phillips, who went missing in a remote area of Brazil's Amazon a week ago. The federal police announced Sunday night that they had identified the belongings of both missing men, such as Pereira's health card and clothes. A firefighter says that Phillips' backpack was tied to a tree that was half-submerged. Pereira and Phillips were last seen near the entrance of an indigenous territory which borders Peru and Colombia. That area has seen violent conflicts between fishermen, poachers, and government agents. U.S. federal health officials said Sunday that kid-sized doses of Pfizer's COVID-19 vaccines appear to be safe and effective for kids under five. A key step toward a long-awaited decision to begin vaccinated the youngest American children. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration posted its analysis of the Pfizer shot ahead of a Wednesday meeting where outside experts will vote on whether the shots are ready for the nation's 18 million toddlers and preschoolers. Kids under five are the only group not yet eligible for the COVID-19 vaccination in the United States. Last week, the FDA posted a similar analysis of Moderna shots for children under the age of six. If regulators clear the shots by one or more companies, vaccinations could begin as soon as next week with the drug makers rapidly shipping doses ordered by the government. Members of the House Committee investigating the U.S. Capitol riot say that they've uncovered enough evidence for the U.S. Justice Department to consider an unprecedented criminal indictment against former President Donald Trump for seeking to overturn the results of the 2020 election. 
Trump has denied all wrongdoing. The committee says Trump's 2020 campaign manager, Bill Stepien, is among the witnesses scheduled to testify at a hearing on Monday. The focus would be on Trump's effort to spread his lies about a stolen election. French President Emmanuel Macron's centrist alliance is expected to keep its parliamentary majority after the first round of voting Sunday, but will likely have far fewer seats than five years ago. According to projections, based on partial results, Macron's party and its allies got about 25 to 26 percent of the vote Sunday on the national level. They were neck and neck with a new leftist coalition, yet Macron's candidates are projected to win in a greater number of districts than their leftist rivals. Recapping our top story, Kremlin-installed officials in occupied southern Ukraine celebrated Russia Day on Sunday and began issuing Russian passports to those in one city who requested them as Moscow seeks to solidify its rule over captured parts of the country. More at VOANews.com via remote. I'm Tommy McNeil, VOA News. Today is Monday, June 13th, and this is VOA's International Edition. I am Chinedorfo in Washington. Coming up in the next half hour, Ukraine established routes through Poland and Romania to export grain and avert a global food crisis. And we're doing our best to ensure that those 22 million tons of grain that are now blocked in the ports in the Ukrainian seaports, blocked by Russia. North Korea's leader vows to increase arms and missiles buildup as the South beefs up its defenses. The rogue leader's comments on increasing the country's arms stockpile came with increased suspicion from the West that the country may carry out a nuclear test explosion imminently. And Pope Francis apologizes to some African governments after cancelling his planned trip. We'll have these stories and more next on International Edition. Stay tuned. Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky says no one knows how long the war in his country will last but the Ukrainian forces are defying expectations by preventing Russian troops from overrunning eastern Ukraine. Zelensky says he is proud of the Ukrainians holding back the Russian advance in the Donbass region. Both sides say there is fierce fighting over one city in eastern Ukraine, where reportedly hundreds of Ukrainian soldiers and civilians are dodging Russian missiles by holding up in a chemical plant. The Russians have demanded that Ukrainian soldiers surrender. Kyiv's Deputy Foreign Minister Dmitry Senek said on Sunday that Ukraine has established two routes through Poland and Romania to export grain and avert a global food crisis, although bottlenecks have slowed the supply chain. He said global food security was at risk because Russia's invasion of Ukraine had halted Kyiv's Black Sea grains export, causing widespread shortages and soaring prices. Ukraine Deputy Foreign Minister Dmitry Senek. First of all, Ukraine is known to be a global contributor to food security, and we're doing our best to ensure that the, uh, those 22 million tons of grain that are now blocked in the ports in the Ukrainian seaports, blocked by uh, Russia, will reach their destination. There are several ports that are under Russian occupation, and the uh, Russian uh, army is now stealing this grain, trying to sell it elsewhere. For the port of Odessa, which is under the control of Ukraine, as it is not operatable now, we are using alternative routes with the help of our friends and partners namely Romania, Poland and Baltic states. We found two routes, we established two routes which help us export these agriculture commodities. 
I do not have any numbers now, and uh, those rats are not perfect because it creates certain bottleneck. But we are doing our best to uh, develop those trials in the meantime. That's Ukraine Deputy Foreign Minister Dmitry Senek. World Trade Organization Chief Ngozi Okonjo-Iweala expressed cautious optimism on Sunday that more than 100 trade ministers meeting in Geneva would achieve one or two global deals this week, but warned the path there would be bumpy and rocky. The Director General from Nigeria said the world had changed since the WTO's last ministerial conference nearly five years ago. She urged trade ministers to find a political will over the coming days to achieve agreements that will reduce fishing subsidies, boost access to COVID-19 vaccines, address food security, and set a course for reform of the WTO itself. The world has changed since the last one. I wish I could say for better, but it's certainly become more complicated. I've never seen in my lifetime so many conflicts at the same time, and I've spoken so much about this because it's pretty unusual. We're still trying to cope with a pandemic that has cost the world millions of lives. We have an international security crisis with the war in Ukraine. We have a major food crisis, an energy crisis, and we have an ongoing climate change crisis. So this poly crisis or simultaneous crisis is really unprecedented. The geopolitical tensions we're dealing with are real. We cannot pretend otherwise, and I wouldn't. But at the same time, it would be a mistake to let these tensions spill over into our work here. If we do, the consequences on the WTO's work and the functions of the multilateral trading system would be severe. Times are difficult, but when the going gets tough, the tough get going. That's World Trade Organization Chief Ngozi Okonjo-Iweala. South Korea's military says North Korea test-fired suspected artillery pieces into the sea on Sunday, days after North Korean leader promoted its key nuclear negotiator to foreign minister. Leader Kim Jong-un vowed on his ruling party that he will use, quote, power for power, unquote, to fight threats to the country's sovereignty. Associated Press correspondent Karen Chamas reports. A resounding applause from the audience at the political conference welcomes leader Kim Jong-un to the center stage. The rogue leader's comments on increasing the country's arms stockpile came with increased suspicion from the West that the country may carry out a nuclear test explosion imminently. As the North Korean anchor on state TV announced the latest update from the conference, it was noted that Kim defended his accelerating weapons development as a rightful exercise of sovereign rights to self-defense. I'm Karen Chamas. South Korean Defense Minister Lee Jong-seop said on Sunday that his country would strengthen its defense capabilities and work closely with the United States to counter North Korea's nuclear missile threat. Lee speaking at an Asian security meeting in Singapore said the situation on the Korean Peninsula posed a global threat and he urged North Korea to immediately end its nuclear weapons and missiles programs. Pacific Island leaders have agreed a deal that should prevent the region's main body from falling apart because of tensions between members. Australia, a key regional power, has said the Pacific Islands Forum is the, quote, architecture, unquote, allowing the region to both manage internal and external issues. From Sydney, Phil Mercer reports. The Pacific Islands Forum includes 18 members. It spans the three cultural and geographic groups of Micronesia, Melanesia and Polynesia, as well as Australia and New Zealand. Some states have diplomatic ties with Taiwan, while others recognise China. 
Founded in 1971, the forum was at risk of splintering over a leadership row that began last year as both China and Australia intensify their diplomatic presence in the Pacific. Micronesia was angry that its candidate for the organization's secretary generalship, Marshall Islands ambassador to Washington and former foreign minister Gerald Zakios, was overlooked in favor of former Cook Islands prime minister Henry Puna. Those antagonisms appear to have been resolved, following a meeting this week of officials from Fiji, Samoa, Cook Islands, Federated States of Micronesia, Palau and Marshall Islands. They agreed to reforms that need to be ratified by all members of the forum at its next meeting. On a recent trip to the region, Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi failed to reach a sweeping trade and security pact with ten island nations because of concerns the process had been rushed. Some leaders called for the proposed accord to be debated by the Pacific Islands Forum. Speaking to Radio New Zealand, Anna Powles, a senior lecturer in security studies at Massey University, said the diplomatic expertise of Pacific leaders shouldn't be underestimated. Minister Wang's visit really demonstrated both the depth of relationships that China has bilaterally, but also the overreach and overconfidence with respect to its efforts to engage at the multilateral level. This demonstrated the astuteness of Pacific statecraft, the way in which Pacific states are leveraging geopolitical interests in the region. Wong did sign individual accords with several island nations in the region during his recent trip, including Kiribati and Samoa. Earlier this year, Beijing signed a security agreement with Solomon Islands, northeast of Australia, to boost the response to natural disasters and to enhance internal law enforcement in a Melanesian archipelago with a history of violent unrest. Australia and its allies are worried the accords will eventually allow China to establish a strategic military foothold in the region. In response, the recently elected centre-left government in Canberra immediately intensified its diplomatic efforts in the region after the May 21 vote, promising more action on climate change, security and aid. Analysts believe that the feeling within the Pacific Islands Forum's 18 members is that the soothing of internal tensions will make the grouping stronger and more unified to carefully consider China's ambitions and Australia's promises of more action on climate change. Phil Mercer for VOA News, Sydney. The UN Children's Fund is appealing for $25 million to provide humanitarian aid to some 1.7 million children in Sri Lanka, many of whom are at risk of dying from malnutrition-related curses. Lisa Schlein reports for VOA from Geneva. Sri Lanka is facing its worst economic crisis since it gained its independence in 1948. The United Nations estimates nearly 5.7 million people, half of them children, need humanitarian aid. UNICEF says nearly one in two children in Sri Lanka requires some form of emergency assistance, including nutrition, health care, clean drinking water, education, and mental health services. Speaking from the capital, Colombo, UNICEF representative in Sri Lanka, Christian Skoog, says malnutrition poses a serious threat to the lives and well-being of children. 
He says Sri Lanka has the second highest rate of acute malnutrition among children under five in South Asia, and at least 17% of children are suffering from chronic wasting, a disease that carries the highest risk of death. He says UNICEF is in a race against time to make sure children most at risk receive the help they need. The target is to to treat 56,000 children uh, for severe acute malnutrition over the, the the next uh, up to six or seven months um, in our UNICEF plan, um, it, potentially they could all be at, at risk of, of dying. There is some support, so that should be able to come in and, and avoid all of that. UNICEF reports the education of 4.8 million children hangs in the balance. It says boys and girls are likely to drop out of school because many school feeding programs have stopped. It says 25 essential medicines for children and pregnant women used in the treatment of life-threatening diseases are expected to run out in the next two months. Skoog says the current crisis also is creating serious protection concerns for children. There are already 10,000 children in institutional care in Sri Lanka, mainly due to a a, a result of poverty. Such institutions are not a good place for children to grow up in. And now, unfortunately, um, the conditions are worsening, and yet more families are taking their children to these institutions um, because they simply can't afford to feed them. As part of its humanitarian plan, UNICEF will ensure 100,000 young children receive school meals, often the only source of nutritious food for impoverished children. Money from the appeal also will provide primary health care for 1.2 million people, safe drinking water for 1.5 million people, and other life-saving assistance. Lisa Schlein for VOA News, Geneva. In other news, Pope Francis has apologized to the people and governments of South Sudan and Democratic Republic of Congo after he was forced to cancel an African trip next month because of a problem with his knee. Speaking during his weekly address at St. Peter's Square, the pontiff said he was postponing the trip, quote, with great regret, unquote. The Vatican said the decision to cancel the July 2nd to 7th trip was taken at the request of the Pope's doctors. They have been treating him for a torn ligament in his knee, The trip to South Sudan and Congo this summer heat would already have been difficult for the 85-year-old, even without mobility problems. For more on this story and other breaking news, visit our website at voaafrica.com. Remember to connect with us on social media. We are on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Search for VOA Africa. You're listening to VOA's International Edition. I am Chinedu Ofo in Washington. UN Human Rights Chief Michelle Bakilek is under fire over her recent trip to China. Critics accuse her of missing an opportunity to condemn Beijing's forced incarceration of nearly 2 million Muslim Uyghurs in internment camps in the country's Kianjing province. For VOA, Lisa Schlein reports again from Geneva. Ahead of the UN Human Rights Council's 50th session, more than 230 rights groups have issued a joint statement calling for High Commissioner Bachelet to resign. They accuse her of whitewashing Beijing's repression against Uyghurs, Tibetans, and other ethnic minorities. They say Bachelet allowed her visit to be turned into a propaganda win for Beijing. They say she squandered a rare opportunity to hold the government accountable for its human rights atrocities. 
Bachelet has not responded to the recent criticism of the visit. However, at the end of her visit to China last month, she said her trip was intended as an opportunity to discuss human rights with senior officials and pave the way for continued talks. She also defended herself from criticism that she was too soft on China by saying she had spoken frankly to Chinese leaders about the crackdown in Xinjiang on the pretext of fighting terrorism. The controversy swirling around the High Commissioner has deflected attention from other serious issues to be considered during the Council's four-week session. Council President Federico Villegas says Bachelet's recent visit to China has nothing to do with the work of the Council. That visit was not mandated uh, by the Council, and it's her prerogative uh, to speak about it. Of course, the human rights situation in China has been raised in, by different formats uh, through joint statements and uh, NGOs. It is possible that during her oral update mentions or uh, shares uh, details of her visit. Activists are demanding Bachelet release her long-awaited report on China's human rights abuses. However, Villegas notes this is an independent report and it is up to the High Commissioner's Office, not the Council, to issue it. The action-packed agenda before the Council includes 90 reports and updates on human rights situations around the world. The findings of several commissions of inquiry, including Ethiopia, Syria, and the first inquiry on the occupied Palestinian territory. Villegas says there will be a special focus on the war in Ukraine. We will address Ukraine several times from different perspectives, um, including reports of the High Commissioner on, on Mariupol. Also, on 5th of July, the Council will receive the Secretary General's periodic report on Crimea and the city of Sevastopol. Human rights activists are calling on the Council to appoint a special rapporteur to investigate human rights violations within Russia. They say exposing the abuses committed by the Russian government against its own people is the best way to curtail atrocities in Ukraine. Lisa Schlein for VOA News, Geneva. In recent months, human rights groups have accused the Ethiopian government forces and their allies of carrying out ethnic cleansing and mass detentions in the embattled Tigray region. Authorities have mostly prevented right groups and journalists from entering the region. However, VOA was given rare but limited and tightly controlled access to the region and some sites allegedly used for detentions and mass graves. Henry Wilkins was there and reports from Humera, Ethiopia. Humera is a focal point for rights groups investigating claims of ethnic cleansing against Tigrayans. Human Rights Watch alleges that Amhara security forces have detained large groups of ethnic Tigrayans in the northern Ethiopian town without charge. One of the last and latest phases, which was from November, December through to January this year, where we were again seeing mass arrests of, of, of Tigrayans who were remaining in certain towns, notably in, in the town of Humera, detentions in two facilities in particular, one prison in Humera town and one makeshift warehouse facility. A BBC report in May quoted locals in Humera alleging Tigrayans were executed there and buried in mass graves. Ethiopian authorities blocked independent investigators and journalists from the area until May, when they gave VOA rare and unexpected access. Ashete Demelu, a local administrator in Humera, said this. 
He says visiting the Agricultural Institute of the Guna Warehouse and other sites mentioned will show how they fabricated the story. He insisted no innocent people are imprisoned in Humera. As the saying goes, seeing is believing. Why don't you go and see some of the places, he added. VOA asked to see seven sites in Humera where alleged abuses and atrocities occurred, but local officials gave limited and controlled access to only two. The Guna Warehouse, which was mentioned in the Human Rights Watch report, did not appear to have had any recent use. Wendawesan Abebe, deputy headmaster at a school next to the alleged site of a mass grave reported by the BBC, denied any such atrocity. He said to his knowledge no Tigrayans were killed and buried in a mass grave. It was not possible for VOA to determine if any bodies had been buried near the school. An official said VOA had asked too many questions and should leave the town. In other parts of the country, Tigrayans who wish not to be identified for their own security say they're being arbitrarily detained and abused. This man says the inmates at a prison he was held at were terrified as the guards frequently told them, get ready, you're going to be killed by tomorrow. There was not sufficient food to eat for the detainees who came from all professions, he says, adding that the prison was very hostile. He says everyone held there suffered and lost weight. Meanwhile, rights groups and independent investigators are still waiting for Ethiopian authorities to grant access to Tigray and other regions where alleged atrocities were committed by both sides in the 18-month conflict. Ethiopia's government and Amhara forces have denied claims of ethnic cleansing in West Tigray. Henry Wilkins for VOA News, Humera, Ethiopia. Go beyond the daily headlines with VOA's Flashpoint Ukraine. Each weekday at 2105 UTC, join me, Steve Miller, as I put the latest developments into a global context with interviews and analysis. Listen online at voanews.com slash flashpoint or in your favorite podcast player. To all our VOA listeners, please note we have moved our programs to a new website, voaafrica.com, from voanews.com. There you will find all your favorite VOA radio and TV programs and a whole lot more. Find us on voaafrica.com, and thanks for listening. This has been International Edition on The Voice of America. On behalf of the entire production team, thank you so much for listening. Visit our website for in-depth coverage of world events and news 24 hours a day at voaafrica.com. Until next time, I am Chinedrofo in Washington. Have a great day. An editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. Palestinians in Gaza face harsh living and economic conditions under Hamas, even as the terrorist group has amassed hundreds of millions in a secret investment portfolio. Hamas maintains a violent agenda that harms both Israelis and Palestinians. 
The United States is committed to denying Hamas the ability to generate and move funds and holding it to account for its role in promoting and conducting terrorist acts. That's why the U.S. Department of the Treasury's Office of Foreign Assets Control, or OFAC, designated a Hamas finance official as well as an expansive network of three Hamas financial facilitators and six companies that have generated revenue for the terrorist group through the management of an international investment portfolio. The individuals and companies listed below are being designated under Executive Order 13224 as amended, which targets terrorists, leaders, and officials of terrorist groups and those providing support to terrorists or acts of terrorism. Ahmed Sharif Abdallah Odeh was in charge of Hamas's international investment portfolio until 2017 and subsequently oversaw the investment portfolio on behalf of Hamas's Shura Council. In mid-2017, Usama Ali was appointed as head of the investment office, a position from which he coordinated financial transfers to Hamas. Hisham Yunus Yahya Kafisha served as Usama Ali's deputy and played an important role in transferring funds on behalf of various companies linked to Hamas's investment portfolio. Anda Company, Aggregate Holding, Trend GYO, and Al Rawad Real Estate Development are all linked directly or indirectly to Hamas. Moreover, Sidar Company and Itkan Real Estate JSC both appeared to operate as legitimate businesses, but in practice were controlled by Hamas and transferred money to the group. And finally, Abdallah Yusuf Faisal Sabri is an accountant who has worked in the Hamas Finance Ministry for several years. These designations target the individuals and companies that Hamas uses to conceal and launder funds, said Assistant Secretary of the Treasury for Terrorist Financing and Financial Crimes Elizabeth Rosenberg. The United States is committed to denying Hamas the ability to generate and move funds and to holding Hamas accountable for its role in promoting and carrying out violence in the region. That was an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. 